Welcome to Season 13 of the Kol Hadash Podcast, featuring the literary readings and responses, as well as, of course, the sermons of Rabbi Adam Shalom. Rabbi Shalom is the leader of Kol Hadash Humanistic Congregation in Deerfield, Illinois, as well as the dean of the International Institute for Secular Humanistic Judaism. Season 13 episodes are from the High Holiday Services from the Jewish year 5784, or 2023 CE. And the theme this year is relationship status. It's complicated. People sometimes ask me when I became a humanistic Jew. What happened to make me question traditional Jewish belief in an intervening God, a revealed Torah, binding religious law, the chosen people, all of it? My intellectual journey is actually very boring. I was raised a humanistic Jew. That's what I am today, the end. (laughs) To borrow a phrase from one of our movement's founders, Yaakov Malkin, my family is actually very traditional. I am a humanistic Jew. My parents were both humanistic Jews. On my mother's side, her parents and grandparents on both sides were secular Jews. Even my rabbi growing up was the OG humanistic rabbi. My wife was raised as a humanistic Jew and still is. My mother-in-law is also a humanistic rabbi. And until they self-declare otherwise, my children are humanistic Jews too. This secular yichus, or humanistic Jewish pedigree, means that I am very comfortable with our philosophy, living it, explaining it, creating within it, My pedigree also means that I have a nagging question in the back of my mind. Am I a humanistic Jew by inertia? This is the way I've always done it? Am I still a humanistic Jew because changing my Judaism or dropping it altogether would create social and family and professional stress? Am I a victim of humanistic Jewish groupthink? Do not worry, I am indeed a committed humanistic Jew and rabbi. Sometimes our parents make choices we actually agree with. Raising me as a humanistic Jew worked, both for them and for us, and for me. It gave me Jewish roots and a way to understand the world that makes sense, that responds to new evidence, that provides values based on human experience and human need rather than revelation and religious authority. I am a humanistic Jew for the same reason as everyone else. This Judaism speaks to my heart and mind more meaningfully than any other identity. A key tenet of humanistic Judaism that speaks to me strongly is the core principle that each of us has the right and responsibility to think for ourselves. But do we? Do we think for ourselves? Last night and today we sat together hearing the same words, singing the same words, standing up and sitting down in unison, and in general, following instructions. If we are literally on the same page at the same time, is that not groupthink? While services are happening, I have no idea what you are actually thinking in your mind. Perhaps you are focused on the weather, or sports scores, or what other people are wearing. Maybe you are preoccupied by a health challenge, or you miss someone you care about, 
or you're thinking about anything other than the lyrics to Hine Matov or a poem by Maya Angelou. I chose which words you would hear. Ellen and I chose which songs we would sing. I chose which ideas would enter your ears to rattle around in your mind. If groupthink is always and forever bad, then ideological community like a humanistic Jewish congregation or action for social justice or advocacy for any issue, they are all fatally flawed. We reject groupthink, but we will have a hard time creating community or finding solidarity with others without at least some of it. Groupthink is a complicated subject. It is emblematic of the complicated relationship between individual free thought and living together. Let's clarify our subject. What is groupthink? Groupthink is going along with what the collective believes and not thinking for yourself. Groupthink is conformity, enforcing boundaries, orthodoxy with a lowercase o, ortho as correct, like orthodontist, dox as in doctrine, orthodox. Groupthink affects politics, religion, social mores, cultural expression, fashion, family dynamics. Groupthink is seductive. Being part of the clan is deeply ingrained in our evolutionary brain, and we feel more secure about our beliefs, our practices, even ourselves, if everyone agrees with us and we agree with them. One person making a statement is an opinion. One million people making that same statement feels like a fact. We have seen the dangers of groupthink in fascism and communism, in religious fanaticism and rigid communities. We've seen the social dangers of challenging groupthink, kneeling during a national anthem, challenging either or gender binaries, asking questions about what everyone else knows to be true. Challenging the social consensus endangers our social standing, and that can apply to questioning orthodoxies right, left, and center. One of the most interesting blessings in the rabbinic canon is the blessing on seeing a large multitude of people, understood to be 600,000 people or more. So it's not a blessing that's used very often. The blessing praises God, the knower of secrets, because, quote, the multitude's opinions are not the same, one from the other and their appearance is not the same, one from the other. Who they are and what they think are all different. From our perspective, we celebrate the multitude of human opinions, 600 or 600,000, knowing that nothing and no one will ever know them all, understand them all, control them all, at least until AI takes over. In the words of a German folk song made famous by Pete Seeger, Die Gedanken sind frei, thoughts are free. I think as I please, and this gives me pleasure. My conscience decrees this right I must treasure. My thoughts will not cater to duke or dictator. No one can deny die Gedanken sind frei. Our thoughts do not cater to duke or dictator or to rabbi or to religion. And yet, it takes some groupthink to gather together people based on shared beliefs and values. Groupthink is how humanity evolved beyond clans of a hundred people into tribes of thousands, nations of millions, civilizations of tens of millions, religions of hundreds of millions. We need groupthink to accept shared concepts like money or the nation state 
or human rights. There is no basic human equality, equality in nature red in tooth and claw. The cougar does not care about your human rights, and neither does a rival clan conquering your territory. If we sometimes question the virtues of unthinking national allegiance, we also acknowledge the precarious nature of the useful fictions, the group thoughts we all agree to, to believe in for the sake of social harmony, stability, and happiness. When we affirm that we as a community have the right and responsibility to think for ourselves, there is a paradox in that statement. If I tell you, think for yourself, how would that work? If you do think for yourself, you're doing what I told you to do, so you're not. If you do not think for yourself, then you agree with me, but then you need to think for yourself because that's what I told you to do. Humanistic rabbis only have so much authority. We don't work in commandments. At best, we offer 10 strongly worded suggestions. <laughs> the word mitzvah comes from the Hebrew root for to command. Rabbinic Jewish theology believed there were 613 mitzvot, commandments given by God and the rabbis. Some were what we would call good deeds, like honoring your parents or respecting elders or paying workers their wages on time. Some were ritual commandments, like dietary laws, or wearing fringes, or fasting on Yom Kippur. And some commandments were intellectual. Love God, fear God, believe the Torah came from heaven. All of them, all 613 were commandments, not suggestions, not proposals submitted for debate and democratic approval. Today, we use the word mitzvah more colloquially, meaning good deeds something we should choose to do, exemplary behavior. But commandments without a cosmic commander do not have the same force. Maybe they are folkways, the lifestyle of our ancestors, elements of our cultural inheritance that still resonate. But I cannot command you to do anything, as tempting as it might sometimes be. Maybe, just maybe, I can persuade you. What does it mean to persuade? Persuasion straddles the line between individuals thinking for themselves and groupthink. Persuasion means encouraging someone else to make up their own mind, but in a certain way. Persuasion encourages someone who is unsure to actually make a decision. Persuasion asks someone to change their mind from what they believed before. These are all very hard things to do, one at a time, to make up your mind, to make a decision, to actually change your mind. And if I'm persuading you, I'm asking you to do all of those all at once. And what if you are trying to persuade someone to change their mind on a core belief of their group identity? That is another order of magnitude harder. Now you're not just asking me to change my mind, you want me to change who I am. Yehuda Kurtzer of the Shalom Hartman Institute explains that true persuasion, true dialogue, is a risk. If I want to change your mind, the most effective path is to first understand you. But learning about what you believe might change my mind. When you were a teacher debating your student, or a parent with a child, and the student or the child changes your mind, in many ways that's a wonderful experience. 
It shows they have learned from you instead of believing what you believe. They are self-actualizing their own intellectual life. They are thinking for themselves. And they are not listening to you because of who you are. A famous story in the Talmud describes a rabbi rebuking a voice from heaven, telling the heavenly voice to butt out when rabbis are debating the law that God gave long ago. Since the law is ours, they declare, now it's up to us to make a decision. In a postscript to that surprising moment, a later rabbi asks what God's response was when he was told to leave them alone. That rabbi is told that God smiled and said, Nitzchuni banai, nitzchuni banai, my children have defeated me. My children have defeated me. The, check, the text actually says that twice. You can picture the God character shaking his head and smiling, just as we might if and when our children outsmart us or make us change our minds. True dialogue with an antagonist, however, with someone in a different groupthink bubble that is opposed to yours, that's a risk many of us will not take. It does make sense to me that certain basic issues of human dignity can be deemed non-debatable. I am not required to respect Nazis by publicly debating whether there really is or not is not a global Jewish conspiracy controlling governments and operating space lasers. I will not debate whether there is such a thing as being transgender or whether same-sex couples should be allowed to marry. Maybe human rights are just groupthink, but dignity and respect are non-negotiable. I accept that the cost of this approach is that other people may declare that they will not debate me on the status of a fetus as a full person from the moment of conception or their beliefs about transgender people. It may still be worthwhile to understand why our antagonists believe what they believe, if only so we can resist their impact on society. Understanding is not the same as engaging, debating, respecting. If it means we give up on persuasion sometimes, well, maybe they were never really persuadable. This summer, I attended the Parliament of the World's Religions at McCormick Place in Chicago. The first such Parliament of the World's Religions was held in Chicago in 1893, part of the Columbian Exposition. The second was also held in Chicago in 1993. This Parliament was number nine. 500 years ago, an assembly of the world's religions would have become an ultimate fighting championship. As Tom Lehrer once sang, oh, the Protestants hate the Catholics, and the Catholics hate the Protestants, and the Hindus hate the Muslims, and everybody hates the Jews. <laughs> Religion is the most prominent example of groupthink in human history. So what happened at this 2023 Parliament of the World's Religions? I helped staff an exhibition table shared by Humanistic Judaism with the American Humanist Association. There were basically four faces and encounters we experienced. The first was, what are you doing here? The second was, okay, I see why they might be here. I have no interest at all in talking to them, but it's okay that they're here. The third was, hmm, that's intriguing. What is a humanist group doing here? Maybe I'll talk to them and learn more about their perspective.
And the fourth was, wow, so excited to see a humanistic perspective included in the, in the uh, spectrum of religious options. Many of those were Unitarian Universalists, some <laughs> liberal Jews, but they were glad to see that humanism was part of the spectrum of world religions. There was no hatred. There was almost no yelling. There were no pogroms. There was no inquisition. After all, this parliament was a self-selected group of religious people who want to spend time with other religions, to learn about them, to find out what they have in common and what they can work on together to improve the world despite theological differences. The fundamentalist extremists who are convinced that everyone else is going to hell, well, this parliament would have been their hell. Many different religions even secular humanists chatting, getting along, encouraging tolerance. There were certainly plenty of group thinkers there, but they were willing to dialogue. No one really expected to change anyone else's mind. We were there to share who we were and what we believed and to learn about others. Sometimes, just sometimes, the barriers of groupthink can go down and minds can change. Sometimes there are two sides to an issue, and persuasion is possible. Remember the joke about two disputants coming to a rabbi for resolution? After hearing the first case, the rabbi says, you are right. When he hears the antagonist's response, he says, you are also right. An observer says, rabbi, you said person A and person B are both right. They can't both be right. The rabbi responds, you are also right. I can believe that Israeli settlement expansion in the West Bank is wrong. I can believe that Israel's treatment of Palestinians and the Palestinian Authority is both short-sighted and oppressive. I can believe that there are racist anti-Arab sentiments among groups of Israeli Jews and diaspora Jews too. I can also believe that the Palestinian Authority is corrupt and ineffective. I can believe that many Palestinians would like there to be no Israel by any means necessary. I can believe that anti-Semitic attitudes are widespread in the Arab world. Is this both sidesism, distracting from one set of problems by saying everyone's terrible? Or am I simply acknowledging that there is more than one perspective? Truth and morality are not monopolies held by one side or the other. We will return to our complicated relationship with Israel on Yom Kippur. Consider this your teaser trailer. <laughs> the point is that groupthink and group loyalty can close our eyes and our ears to other perspectives. Sometimes we have to force them open to make us think for ourselves. It's very easy to sign on the party line, very easy to agree with what people like you all think, very easy to like the same posts and share the same memes that confirm what we already believe. I think it's good for us to be a heretic once in a while from our own orthodoxies. We all have our groupthink orthodoxies. What are your heresies? Maybe you're a progressive who questions liberal immigration. Maybe you're a libertarian who sees value in government support for healthcare access. Maybe you're a fiscal conservative who would subject all wage income to social security tax for fairness sake. We all have our orthodoxies. 
What are your heresies? Kol Hadash is an ideological community. Humanistic Judaism is an ideological community. We have shared values and beliefs. We affirm everyone's right and responsibility to make up their own minds on the big and the small questions of life, even though sometimes their conclusions take them beyond the boundaries of a humanistic Jewish community. As the Yiddish saying goes, you shouldn't be so open-minded that your brain falls out. <laughs> the strength of our community is not built on uniformity, on rigid groupthink, on orthodoxy, on demanding agreement. We celebrate the power of no, the power of I disagree, the power of I have a different opinion. We balance our groupthink with our freethink. Is that complicated? Of course, but we would not have it any other way. If I had a congregation that agreed with me 100% of the time, that would be disturbing. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for agreeing. If I persuade you, great. If I do not persuade you, also great. If I make you think longer and deeper and differently before you make up your own mind, mission accomplished. Wishing you and yours a happy, healthy, and thought-provoking new year. Thank you for listening to the Kol Hadash podcast. To learn more, support, and membership to Kol Hadash, visit kolhadash.com. To learn more about secular humanistic Judaism, visit shj.org.